Today, um, we are looking at a life verse which uh, has been uh, given to us by Matt Oberholzer, and it is Psalm 910b. He specified the second half of the verse, Psalm 910. O Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. O Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. Matt was not able to be here today, but I talked to him by phone yesterday, and I think he'll be listening to our live streaming this morning. But I asked him why that verse was so meaningful to him, and he remembered a specific time in his life when things were really going off the rails for him. And part of that was a sense that he had lost contact with God as his life was out of control. And that's when Psalm 910 came to him, and it, was, it stayed with him. It is, O Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. Such a simple statement. But in a time of confusion and chaos, it's that simplicity that we need to hear. It's God's whisper, I'm still here. And that reassured Matt, and I hope we uh, are... Uh, do justice to his experience this morning as we look at it more closely. We're going to go to the Middle East, a little farther east than uh, Israel, to the land of Persia, where we're going to meet a guy by the name of Omar Khayyam. You'd know him, right? Right. He lived in the 12th century, um, beginning latter part of the 11th and the beginning of the 12th century, in Persia, and in a kind of remote area of Persia, uh, but he somehow was networked with all the greater minds in the western part, the Greeks who were thinking new thoughts about life and the meaning of it all, and the Romans and the other uh, world, the network of kind of advanced thinkers. And Omar Khayyam was a on the edge with certain areas, particularly geometry. Some of his discoveries in geometry changed things and are still in effect today. And on the calendar, he came up with a way of measuring the calendar. Uh, it was much more accurate than what had been used earlier. And he was well known for his scientific thinking and his mathematical thinking. Uh, in 19th century Europe, another side of Omar Khayyam surfaced, and there were some discoveries made of poems that he had written, and these became translated by a man by the name of Edward Fitzgerald, and one of his, I think his most famous poem, and what most of us, if we know about him at all, know him for, is a poem called Rubaiyat. And, uh, it, that simply means, uh, apparently, a ruba is a stanza, and rubea is the plural. So it's the verses of, uh, of Omar Khayyam. Basically, it's a poem by an advanced thinker about him, how inadequate modern thinking was at his time. That's a thousand years ago how inadequate modern thinking was in giving answers to questions about God 
and the meaning of human life. He knew all there was to know at his time, and it wasn't enough. His poem is, it, it, it's emotionally goes from heavy thoughts to lighthearted thoughts, and, but involves his questioning of religion particularly and the inadequacy of religious answers. He was familiar with Muslim religion because the country he would grow up and he had the ancient religion of Persia. He knew about Christianity. He knew about Judaism. He was in touch with all of that. And his conclusion was they don't have any of the answers. And so after he got done saying all these things, his bottom line solution to the problem was eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. This is the result of the most profound thoughts by one of the greatest thinkers of his day. And the poem repeatedly goes to that line. And possibly his best known couplet is a, 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 a kind of a reflection on romantic love. I remember this was the first thing I read in this poem because I'm a romantic guy. And the, the, the author of the poem says, uh, a book of verses underneath the bough a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou. Beside me, singing in the wilderness. Ah, wilderness was paradise, and now. And now means enough. So having a loaf of bread, a jug of wine, and you beside me singing, um, that's enough. That's what, that, that, I'll be satisfied. The great scientist, whose mind had gone to the end of the globe as he knew it, <laughs> That's where he came out. And the last line of his poem, it's amazing. After every once in a while, he returns to this theme. Well, it's all too much. It's all too much. We'll go have a glass of wine. And at the end of the poem, he says, uh, he says, when you come to my grave, turn an empty glass upside down. That's me, right? Um, and that's the state he had come to. But at the heart of his poem, he has this profound description of God as elusive and hiding from all human attempts to understand him. God is trying not to be understood. That's what he thought. Here's, a, here's a, the first part of this section. It talks about the meaning of human life. A moment, it's, it's like a caravan going through the desert. A moment's halt a momentary taste of being from the well amid the waste and low, the phantom caravan has reached the nothing it set out from. Oh, make haste. The human caravan pauses at the oasis. That's your life right there, a momentary taste of being. And then the caravan moves on back to the nothingness it began from. That's his cynical bottom line. Then how should we spend life? Would you spindle that? Would you, would you, would you that spangle of existence? Spend about the secret. That's how he sees your life. A spangle of existence. Boop! It's gone. Would you spend that life on the secret, on trying to figure out the meaning of it all? Quick about it, friend. A hair perhaps divides the false from true. 
And upon what? Pray thee, may life depend. A hair perhaps divides the false and true, yes, and a single olive were the clue, could you but find it to the treasure house and peradventure to the master too, if you could find it. But here's how he describes God. He is the master whose secret presence, that's, that's a clue to how he sees God. He, he's trying to be secretive. His secret presence through creation's veins running quicksilver-like. Quicksilver is mercury, so it kind of dribbles through. And he is running like quicksilver, eluding your pains, taking all shapes from ma to mahi, all the different gods of the universe. And they change and perish all, but he remains. This is God who is hiding from us, who is trying to keep himself a secret. And then this, this verse, a moment guest, that is, we, we, we think we see him, we think we understand him, a moment guest, then back behind the fold, immersed of darkness round the drama roll, which for the past time of eternity, he doth himself contrive and act behold. He appears, and then he dives for cover back behind a curtain. And I said, what is that curtain? Well, he knew about Judaism, and maybe it's the curtain, the Holy of Holies. Maybe he's referring to that. No, it's about a drama. It's about a play. And God, the curtain opens. Who's the play by? Oh, it's by God. Who's the actor in the play? Oh, God's the actor. Who's the audience in the play? Oh, God is the audience. He's the author, the actor, the audience. He doth himself contrive and act behold. That's the ludicrous conclusion that this great thinker came to after studying all the religions of the world. So God is playing hide and seek with us. That's why he became so cynical. Because that's what he thought religions taught about God. They promised to get us to know God, but they pull the rug from under us because God does not want to be known. Now, the verse today, Matt's life verse, O Lord, you have not forsaken those who seek you. It's just the opposite of God hiding. It's God being right where he always has been. Now, Connie and I, we sit down and talk about what, who's going to preach the next sermon, which one of the life verses we're going to preach on. We go through the list of all the verses people have turned in, and we select things. Nobody selected this verse. And I thought, why? And why am I not selecting? It doesn't grab me. <laughs> I get it. It grabs a map, but, but, but what is it about? It doesn't feel profound, exciting, provocative. Oh, yeah, um, God has not forsaken us. Okay. It, it doesn't sound uh, like a new insight. It what would I say about that in preaching? The God of Psalm 9 never changes. He doesn't pull the curtain and show us a new act. No, he's always the same. 
Act one is like act two, like act three. He's totally predictable. Uh, totally unlike the God described by Omar Khayyam. Now let's look at all of that verse. Now, Matt chose a 10b, the second half of the verse. Well, let me read all of it, 10a and b. Those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Those who know your name. Well, Omar Khayyam said God is not knowable. He doesn't want us to know his name or to be able to label him. He wants to be mysterious, keep us guessing. No, that's not what the Bible says. Now, Psalm 9:10 says, those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who trust you. Let me look at the context around this, all of Psalm 9, beginning with verse 1. There's an opening expression of praise. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to it. Some of you find it easier to use your phones, and uh, we're going to assume you're uh, looking at a Bible, Bible on your phones and not social media. Psalm 9. There's an opening expression of praise. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise in your name, O Most High. There's excitement here. He, he is thrilled to be talking to the Lord. So he's excited about a God who doesn't move and who doesn't surprise us. He gives his personal testimony in verse 3. When my enemies turned back, they stumbled and perished before you, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. That is, when I have followed your way, you have always supported me. You have always been there for me. And then the nations, they have not. They've gone their own way. And uh, verse, um, in verse 5, you've rebuked the nations. You've destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemies have vanished in everlasting ruins. Their cities you have rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. I couldn't help but think of another poem by Percy Bishelli, which is called Ozymandias, wonderful name. It actually is a Greek form of the name Ramses II, who was probably the greatest pharaoh of Egypt and is most likely to be the pharaoh when Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. This Ramses II, or Ozymandias, is the subject of the poem that Shelley wrote. Listen to this poem. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip, sneer of cold command, tell that its sculptor, well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. So he sees this uh, crumbled monument in the desert, just like 
the sphinx near the pyramids, you know. You can see the shape, but part of the head is missing and, and uh, legs are falling apart and so forth. And he sees all this, and here's the end of the poem. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look at my work, she mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's the braggadocia of the nations. Which one's biggest this year? Which one's strongest? World War One, World War Two, World War Three, whatever's next. The nations rage and then they crumble. But Yahweh, in contrast, verse 7, but the Lord sits enthroned forever. Sits. Doesn't go out to battle, but sits. Enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with equity. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Now comes our verse, verse 10, right in the middle of all of this. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For in you, O Lord, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. For those who know your name. Remember when God told Moses to go before people for Pharaoh and say, let my people go? And Moses said, well, who, whom shall I say sent me? I mean, why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? What was the answer? He says, tell him, I am a sent you. What is God's name? That's where the name for God comes from. It is, I am. So God said to Moses, I am who I am. I stay the same. That's who I am. Everything else changes, but I am who I am. So say, I am has sent you. So that phrase, I am, has become the four-letter YWHW that you have seen as a name for God that is unspeakable. You're not supposed to express it in, uh, in uh, many Jewish circles. It's the holy name, unpronounceable name. But according to Psalm 9, we should pronounce it. We should claim it. That is his name. It is the one who is who sent me. It's not the God hiding, playing hide and seek, trying not to be known. It's this God. Now, in the Hebrew lesson for everybody, you have a Bible, the Pew Bible, if you're near there or on your phone, I want you to turn to Psalm 16. You have to look at this to appreciate it. Psalm 16 and verse 1. It says this, Protect me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Okay, now, Protect me, O God. That is the name Elohim. It's the, the name to describe God. It's also described 
other gods with a small g. But there's a different word where when he says, I say to you, to the Lord, you are my Lord, two lords. They're two different words. In English, they look the same, or do they? Look, the first one, they're all caps. You see that? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second one, there's just a capital L, and then an O-R-D. Now, this happens to be in this one verse, but throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, you will find that translators translate these two words in these ways, and it always shows up in the English versions. If it says capital L-O-R-D, it stands for the word Adonai, which means it, it's the Lord, the one in authority over me. Women say it to their husbands. <laughs> Workers say it to their boss. That's capital L-O-R-D. But when you see all caps, like the first one, that is the word Yahweh. That translates that. All throughout the Bible, the Old Testament, you can follow that, and you can trust the translators have done that. I wish they, were, they kept a different word. Because this word, this name, Yahweh, was a personal name given to the Israelites, and they were among a people who worshiped God in this form, that form, this form, and statues and, and uh, obscure uh, ideas and all. But he says, I am. This is, this is your God right here. And he gives his name, and he wants his name to be known. Now, going back to Psalm 9, you will go through Psalm 9, and you'll see every time the word Lord appears in Psalm 9, it's all caps. That means it's always Yahweh. And it would be helpful to almost read it that way because you'd get the feeling. The whole revelation to Israel is all these gods? No, there's only one God. And this one God wants to be known. He's giving you his name. That's radical. I am has sent you. And then um, going on, just to read the rest of the verse after verse 10. Sing praises to the Lord who, who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the peoples. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. Does not forget the cry of the afflicted. And then finally, uh, the, and then there's a personal appeal He's talked about the nations and all those cosmic things. Then in verse 13, be gracious to me, O Lord. Don't forget little old me. See what I suffer from those who hate me. You are the one who lifts me up from the gates of death that I may recount all your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. Rejoice in your delivery. And then uh, the parent justice will be corrected in verses 15, 16, 17, 18. And then the final verse in 18 for the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. But those who know your name, those who stop running after all the ideas of God and stand still and know the God who is standing still, 
the God who has always been there for you, who is the eternal I am, that's where you will find truth. Rubiot shows that this man, as smart as he was, could never stop the continuing drama that his mind was playing in trying to discover God. O oh Lord, Yahweh, those who know your name, those who recognize you, will know that you want to be recognized. God wants to be known. That's what the Bible is all about. That's the Old Testament revelation preparing for the New Testament revelation. And uh, just as if she wanted to be part of the sermon, uh, Deborah Blake sent an image this morning from where she and Elton are camping in New Mexico. And there are three crosses. And on the middle cross, she says, it says, I am. I thought, yeah. The Old Testament, God says, I am. I'm the one you're dealing with and you have to deal with. The New Testament says, I am with you. I am like you. I am dying for you. I am rising for you. Years ago, I heard a, a preacher say, if, if God seems far away from you today, guess who moved? I'll never forget that. He's right where he's always been. He's not hiding. You're the one who's hiding. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us as we try to avoid simple, powerful truths that would change our lives. We need to just stop and be who we are in response to who you are and then let you make the changes that we're trying to make in our lives to become in tune with the universe you've created because we're not trying to recreate our own in our image. We're just getting to know you. That's what we want, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.